Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashadu anna Muhammadur Rasulullah, Hayya ala salah, Hayya ala al-falah, Qadakamati salah, Qadakamati salah, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, La ilaha illallah. It's January 2001, and I'm sat waiting for the final prayer of the day in Hanwell Mosque, West London. The mosque itself is pretty nondescript, as many mosques are. Ubiquitous green carpets, white plasterboard walls, a notice board full of notices that are out of date, and a smattering of religious texts, and a prayer niche which denotes where the leader of the prayer stands. The call to prayer has just been given. And so the congregation rises as one and we form orderly lines as the Imam makes his way to the front. He faces us and he tells us to close the gaps between each other, to stand shoulder to shoulder, feet to feet, not to allow any space for Satan to come between us. A hush descended on the congregation and the Imam began the prayer. Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest. We repeated, raised our hands to our shoulders and placed them across our chest. And we listened to his melodious voice recite the opening verses of the Quran. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. All praise is due to God, the Lord of all the worlds. The Qur'an is harmonious, it is melodious. It allows you to transcend the material world with ease. But on that particular day, I was very much rooted in the material world. You see, I had an important phone call to make and it had to happen immediately after that prayer. It didn't matter what I did, I couldn't focus. I tried to stare at the spot where I placed my head, it didn't work. I tried to focus on the words of the Imam. It didn't work. I tried to close my eyes to avoid any distractions. And it didn't work. So as soon as that prayer ended, I made my excuses and I sprang to my feet. And I worked my way through the congregation until I could get to my shoes. I put them on without tying the laces and then sprinted to my car. As soon as I got in, I pulled out my Nokia 6110 and then I stopped. This phone call could change my life or it could leave it just as it is. I know what I had asked God for and I was about to find out. So I punched in the numbers and I made the call. Assalamu alaikum, brother. Walaikum salam, sister. Peace be to you, sister. We spoke about everything and we spoke about nothing, dancing around the subject. And then finally, at the right moment, I paused and I took a breath. And I asked her, Will you marry me? Episode 3 playing the field.
I just can't do this anymore. I just can't. I haven't got the energy. I'm miserable all the time. And that's when the tears started to roll down my face. It's 1999 and I'm sat in the lounge in Greenford, West London, opposite my mother. And she's looking at me totally confused. Here's her son, who's working in a prestigious job, earning good money, who owns stock in the company, who has a company car, who seems to be stabilising in life and looking to the future. What immigrant parent wouldn't want that for their child? And here I am, complaining. I mean, I was desperate. I was desperate because I felt purposeless. It's true, the job I had for a Californian software firm at the height of the dot-com era was a plum job. In my very first week, they flew us out to Las Vegas for an induction. There were many more trips to America. They even sent me to Australia on a couple of occasions to train up some of their staff. And on a regular basis, I found myself in Amsterdam. It was ideal. I was broadening my horizons. The way I got that job is that they headhunted me. And they doubled my wage. But something was clearly missing. I was never really one to be seduced by perks. To be seduced by money. I mean, money's important. Money's nice. But it doesn't give you purpose. And that's what I was looking for. And I think the straw that broke the camel's back was when I headed into the office on Stockley Park in Uxbridge and one of the senior management called everybody down to the car park. And so we all rushed behind him. And there were a few giggles and shouts. And he presented his new Mercedes to us. And at the same time mentioned his new home in Chelsea that he had just bought. And there were a few coos and oos and ahs. I just found the whole thing so shallow. And the whole environment was like that. There was no depth to it at all. The work felt completely abstract. And so I found myself in a position where I didn't know where to go next. I didn't know what to do. I'd never really given it much thought. But I wanted to do something which was good. Something that was bigger than myself. So I cried. Because I couldn't work out what that was. And I felt so miserable. My search for a wife was well underway by this time. As soon as I left uni, there were two things that I wanted to do. Number one was find a good job. 
so I'd managed to do that. And number two was to find a wife. That was proving to be a little bit more tricky. You see, finding a wife in 1999 involved either going down the route of asking friends and family or venturing online. Now, just bear in mind, this is 1999. Online dating or online matrimonials, if you're going to talk about it from a Muslim perspective, they didn't really exist. But a few early adopters or early startups had decided to try this. And so I was on it. I had found a couple of websites. I think one of them was called Al-Usra. And I think the other one might still be going and might be a market leader and it's called singlemuslim.com. And I filled out the information. I put my profile up there. I even remember asking a friend to take pictures of me, all suited and booted with my three-quarter length jacket with a a purple Thomas pink shirt with a black tie, uh, full-length beard, uh, short cropped hair. Um, I asked him to take pictures of me around Canary Wharf. And then I was going to, and this was on an analog camera. So I was going to develop these pictures and then scan them and then put them up on my profile. You can see I was very, very serious about finding a wife. This really wasn't the done thing at that time. But I was pretty determined. So I'm online and I'm searching and now there's a bit of a market for this. And I'm talking to people, but there are just a few grainy images. Really, you're just, it's the blind leading the one-eyed or the one-eyed leading the blind or probably both. And finally, I get a bite. This is the first time that I will be talking to somebody with a view to getting married. And I found that as opposed to real life, where I'd become a little bit tongue-tied when it came to women, online, I was actually pretty good. I knew how to write and I knew how to quip and I knew how to communicate through that medium. And so with the first email, I remember there was this this to and fro. You'd you'd be at work, but you'd spend a couple of hours on your DX266 computer. That shows my age. And you'd fire it up. You'd go to the matrimonial website and you'd spend a lot of time sending these emails. And you'd impatiently wait for them to come back. You'd be continuously refreshing. I suppose that much probably hasn't changed for a lot of people. And you'd expect at least one message a day. One meaningful message a day. And finally, I had my first date. She told me that she studied in New York, but she was spending a year in London. And that she was looking to get married within the next 12 months. And she was looking for a practicing Muslim. Practicing being somebody who prays and somebody who is upon Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. 
which is a particular flavour of Islam. And so I thought, well, this is great. This is exactly what I'm looking for. So why don't we meet? And we did. I turned up to Notting Hill, where she was studying. And we met in a public place because you weren't meant to meet alone. And it was relatively formal. The thing I didn't count on was that she was black. Now, I didn't actually have any preference for who I was going to marry. There was no expectation on me to marry somebody of a similar ethnic background. And from an Islamic perspective, it's actually encouraged to marry people who are outside of your own particular tribe, quote-unquote. But I was taken aback because I hadn't met many black Muslims. And here she was from New York, with a New York accent. But she was quite shy, and the meeting was quite formal, but I remember it was sweet. We didn't really speak about much. We just spoke about hopes and aspirations, kind of the time time frame for getting married. And then that was it. No promises of meeting again. And to be fair, I didn't think I was going to marry the first person that I met. And I just thought that would just be the wrong thing to do. I mean, why would you do that? Why would you not see what else is available? That was my attitude. And so the search continued. And the encounters became more and more bizarre. I remember once I decided to rely on a friend to set up a meeting. Now at this point, I want to say that these are not arranged marriages. These are not forced marriages. These are simply people introducing me to other people who are looking to get married. So a meeting was set up in Hounslow in West London, quite close to my family home. Now, normally, before you get to meet the girl, there is some kind of family involvement. But that whole tradition was weakening as people like myself and people of my generation just wanted to modernise the whole thing a little bit. They didn't want the pressure of family hanging over anything. They just wanted to meet somebody and to see if they get on and then get family involved in order to make things official. So I approached the door and I knocked and I always used to make an effort. I would be suited, I'd be booted, I'd be well groomed. And the door opened and it was a very stern looking man who was obviously the father of the girl I was looking to meet. He was stern, but he was fair. I guess he was just being protective over his daughter. And I didn't know what he knew of me anyway. But I generally was quite good with potential father-in-laws. I was able to charm. I didn't really speak the lingo. I couldn't, I couldn't speak Urdu. I couldn't speak Hindi. I couldn't speak Gujarati. You know, if I, if I did try, it would probably be pretty hilarious because I picked up most of my language through watching Bollywood films from the 80s with my parents. Uh, I can't stand those anymore. 
but at the time that's how I picked up my language and that makes me sound very dramatic anyway so he opened the door and I said assalamu alaikum uncle I said wa alaikum salam please come in so I walked in and the first thing I noticed is the fact that everything is absolutely pristine there's a beautiful carpet but on top of the carpet there's a clear plastic mat in order that no dirt touches the carpet the shoes have to be removed and placed on a rack and then he leads me through he's wearing this beautiful blue kind of silk cotton silk shalwar kameez with a white waistcoat quite traditionally Pakistani I think he had a moustache as well and he led me through and I came into the lounge and there's a beautiful white leather sofa again covered in plastic to make sure no dirt gets on it and there's a buffet to one side and he invites me to have a bite to eat and so we, we make pleasant small talk he asked me about my family and where we're from um, he asked me about work and then he disappears and I don't really know where he's gone but I'm guessing it's got something to do with either dessert or he's going to invite his daughter to join us and this is the point where you always think please be attractive please please be attractive I've just spent the last 45 minutes making small talk with your dad and it just would be nice if I find you fit and in she comes and she is just a bundle of energy huge smile really lovely lovely character she's not wearing a scarf and for me that's an automatic no-no because at that stage in life I was what you might term an orthodox conservative Muslim somebody who took the scripture that he understood very very seriously and saw the fault in others rather than making excuses for others and so she walked in and I found as I say I found a very very pleasant company but the fact that she did not wear the scarf meant that it was an automatic no-no so I spent about another 20 minutes there and then I made my excuses and I left never to be seen again and so the online matrimonials continued I'd get to know somebody we'd meet and then that would be it and I'd move on to the next I guess it was my way of meeting women getting to know them I hadn't spent any time with them during my teenage years I was now 21 and I was looking for a wife but I didn't know what that was I didn't know what qualities to look for I had been told that the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him said that you should look for certain qualities in a wife or in a partner that number one you should look for piety that you could marry for beauty you could marry for wealth or you could marry for lineage but the best thing to do is to marry for piety and so with that in mind I would meet people and try and understand 
what the quality of their relationship with God was. Now that's a pretty difficult thing to determine for anybody for themselves, let alone trying to determine it in somebody else that you've never met before. But at that age, you don't think like that. You just look for the outward signs. And so if somebody wasn't wearing a scarf, that would be immediate no-no. If there was too much makeup, no-no. If they were wearing perfume, no-no. If their clothes, clothes were too colourful, if they weren't baggy enough, I wasn't interested. At the same time, I wanted something special. I wanted somebody tall, thin, fair-skinned, preferably white. I didn't know it at the time, but it's a mindset of many immigrants. They've been shut out of the mainstream for so long that they wish to validate themselves. And what better way to validate yourself than to have the very thing that you've been denied for all your life? A white woman. But the Muslim diaspora doesn't really consist of white women. They tend to be from Somalia or from Pakistan or from India or from Bangladesh in the UK anyway. So I persisted. I continued. I was on a website one day and I got a reply. I remember this because I was hoping for a reply from this particular person. You see, they were a convert. Somebody who had changed their faith to Islam. There's one problem though. She lived in Australia. But that didn't put me off. Not that I had any plans to move to Australia. Not that I had any plans. Actually, I didn't have any plans at all. I didn't really think this one through. But all I saw was white convert. And I liked what she'd written. And so we began an online conversation. And the emails went back and forth and it, we were really vibing. You know, when you're just, you're in the flow. These days people slip into each other's DMs. We were slipping each other nice emails. You know, four or five paragraphs, good meaty paragraphs. Every time the level had to be upped. And then she asked me a question. I guess she was testing me. And the question was this, what would you do if your wife became paraplegic? And I was at work at the time and I read this and I thought, paraplegic, what does that mean? And then I thought to myself, I know exactly what it means. So I quickly replied, now here's a lesson. Always double check your emails before you send them. If there's something you're not certain about, 
do not send the email. By this time, I was fully invested. I felt like I knew the person. I knew who she was. I knew her family was. I knew her background. I had feelings for her. And so I started to type. If my wife was paraplegic, if she had no arms and no legs, I would still fully support her. Yes, I know. That's horrific. That's a horrific answer. Now you're probably saying, what? That's not what paraplegic is. And you're right. I know. I know now. But at the time, I didn't know. I thought I knew. I thought it was somebody who didn't have arms and legs. Why didn't I Google it? Well, Google had just been established in 1998. The search engines I had available at the time was Lycos and Alta Vista and Ask Jeeves. And none of those exist anymore, and for good reason. But having said that, if I typed in paraplegic, number one, I can't spell. Number two, okay, the internet even back then probably could have handled it. It probably would have told me what it was, but I was impatient and I was relatively sure that I was right. And as you can tell from the tone in my voice, I'm highly embarrassed by my response. So I sent it. And I experienced the phenomenon which has now been given the term of being ghosted. That's right. After weeks, after weeks of emailing each other, of heightened expectations, of developing feelings for somebody else, she just disappeared. Clearly, she thought I was an idiot. Clearly, she thought I'd wasted her time. And I admit, that was incredibly stupid. But at the same time, I have to, I have to say, what's with the question? What is with that question? What are you hoping to find out from me by asking me that question? Okay, fine, you found out that I'm an idiot. Um, but even if I did know what it was, anyway. Anyway. So that wasn't the end of it. I was still ruminating over this. I was waking up thinking of her. I was going to sleep thinking of her. I was praying thinking of her. And then slowly but surely over the course of time, those feelings started to melt away and I found another focus, probably somebody else to somebody else's time to waste. And then I joined this Californian software company and within a few weeks of joining, they said to me, we probably need you to go to Melbourne, Australia. And as soon as I had Melbourne, all of those feelings that I had for her came flooding back because that is where she lived. She lived in Melbourne. And so I thought, okay, calm down. Don't be an idiot. Type out an email, send it to her, but don't make yourself look desperate. Just mention the fact that you're in town and that you'd love to meet. And so I did, and I heard nothing back. And I was pretty down at this time, because, you see, I was defining myself as somebody who should be married. And the fact that I wasn't, 
and the fact that I had been either rejecting people or being rejected, it just didn't sit well with me. It set off all kinds of anxieties and insecurities. So the time to go to Melbourne was approaching. And then I get a notification in my Hotmail email account. And it's her. And I look at the name. And I think it's really her. She's replied. Then I set myself up for the disappointment of her saying, look, you know, I'm sorry, but I've moved on. There isn't any anything for us to talk about. So I click on the email and I open it. Assalamu alaikum, Imran. So lovely to hear from you. Oh my God. It's lovely to hear from me. And the email went on. I can't believe you're coming to Melbourne. That's amazing. Here's my number. When you're here, get in touch. I couldn't believe it. I was going to meet her in only a week's time. And so my mind started racing. It started racing ahead to making plans to get married, making plans for a family. I didn't understand what was happening with the whole Australia-UK thing, but it didn't matter. We were going to meet. And most likely, the reason she wanted to meet was because she wanted to marry. She didn't care about my stupid comment. She didn't care about my stupid answer to her email. She'd obviously had other things going on, and now things were back to where they were. And so I flew out to Melbourne. And I spent two days working, and I sent her another email and a text to say that I'd arrived. And I didn't get a response, and this absolutely killed me. I'm thinking, I'm here now. You've sent me an email. Why aren't you responding? And then finally she did. She got back in touch. And she said, this is where I live. Come and meet me here. And I want to introduce you to my husband. And my heart sank. Husband? You have a husband? You didn't care to tell me you had a husband? Then I thought, well, why would you tell me? You clearly had moved on. You clearly had decided I was an idiot. And there was somebody else more worthy of your companionship. But I didn't show that when we did meet because I thought, well, yes, we should meet. That would be the mature thing to do. And when she opened the door, it wasn't what I was expecting. She sounded extremely Australian. She was shorter than I'd expected. And she was wearing a full face veil. Again, not something I was expecting at all. It's quite a combination, that. Strong Aussie accent, face veil, white woman. 
and she invited me into her home. She'd made a lovely meal. She introduced me to her husband, who was a Malayan chap. And we just had a great time. And then she invited one of her friends around to meet me. And then I realised that it was kind of... She was introducing me to her friend who was looking for a husband. And she felt that that friend would be suitable for me. And I was quite insulted by this because I didn't actually take to the friend that much I didn't find her engaging and the fact that I'd been rejected meant that I wasn't interested in being introduced it was all quite immature anyway at the end of the night we all prayed together and I made my excuses uh, and I left with my tail firmly between my legs so I went back to the hotel that night in Melbourne the Grand Hyatt Probably one of the best hotels I've stayed in. And I looked at myself in the mirror. And I just saw this sad man. All dressed up. Nowhere really to go. Had come all the way to Melbourne on the premise of working. But really, my main motivation was to meet my future wife. And that just lay in tatters. So I was at square one. I managed to make it through my trip, although I was heartbroken. And then I came back home. And that's when things started to collapse around me. My search for a wife wasn't really getting anywhere. My work, whilst paying well and providing status wasn't really doing it for me either and so those two pillars that I wanted to build my life on were crumbling and I felt this existential threat what am I? I say I am a Muslim I say I'm dedicated to God but my actions don't reflect what I say I am. And whenever there is a disjuncture between who you say you are and who you are, there is internal conflict. My head was all over the place. I needed to take a break. So I jumped in my car. And I drove from London to Yorkshire. Takes about three hours. I had some old university friends still living in the area. And so I decided to stay with one of them. And that was therapeutic. That was good. It was nice to be around friends. Not to feel the pressure of life. Not its expectations. And to have many of my beliefs reaffirmed. We would pray together. We would eat together, mainly pizza and fried chicken. And yes, we would talk about marriage. One particular friend, who was more like an older brother, he was already married, well-established, with kids. And he always used to look out for me. And he knew how desperate I, I wanted to get married. And so while I was around, he said to me, Listen, 
There's a sister in Manchester. She converted at my house. I'm like, really? When? A couple of weeks ago. I said, great, when can I meet her? He said, look, listen, relax. She's new to the faith and she's young. She's only 20 years old. So give her six months and we'll see where we're at. But I just thought I'd mention it. I'm like, why have you mentioned it to me if it's not a possibility? Now, if you think about it, that's quite a reasonable request. It's quite a sensible thing to say. But I didn't take it that way. I felt as though he was dangling a carrot in front of me and then taking it away. I didn't appreciate that. So I said, yeah, okay, dude, whatever. Right? I've had enough of this anyway. So we parted company and I went back to doing whatever it is I was doing, searching for, for work and meaning and purpose and whatever else. And about four months later, I got a phone call. It was him again. He goes, listen, bro, do you remember that sister I told you about? I said, yeah, the, uh, the one who converted. Do you want to meet her? I'm like, you know I want to meet her. When can we do that? How soon? He goes, look, it doesn't have to be done soon. I'm just wondering whether you're still interested. I said, yes, clearly I'm still interested. Let's do this as soon as possible. He said, okay, can you make it this weekend? Fine, I'll drive up and then we'll drive over to Manchester together. And so that's what we planned. So within a couple of days, I was packed up. I didn't tell my mother what was happening. And I got in the car and I drove up to Yorkshire. We met, he was already ready. There was no time for any pleasantries. He jumped in the car and we drove over the Pennines, the beautiful Pennines. Manchester. As we drove I felt excited. I felt liberated, optimistic. I just thought this could be it. This could be the moment when I get married and my life changes for the better. That I will have purpose and that I will have direction. And so I invested all of that into this meeting. I wanted it to happen. But first we had to meet. I parked up outside a detached house in a middle-class part of North Manchester, just bordering the Orthodox Jewish area. And I turned off the engine and pushed the gate open. And I made my way down the garden path, which was quite long. And as I was walking, I could see the curtains twitching and I thought, okay, I'm being checked out here, which is only fair. They're checking me out before I can check her out. And I say they, that's because she will have friends with her to guide her. I mean, she's a new Muslim. Of course, she needs, she needs help. She needs guidance. So I expected that. So I knock on the door. I'm dressed pretty casually. I'm wearing a Ralph Lauren jacket, kind of a golfer's jacket, or maybe a mod, you'd call it a mod jacket, and a pair of blue jeans. I'm pretty well groomed, try to look my best. 
the door opens and I'm faced with a six foot four giant of a man with a huge beard down to his belly button. Thankfully for me, he is the most friendly man you could ever come across. This guy's actually the Wali. The Wali, Islamically, is somebody who takes care of the interests of the woman. And it is a male figure. Typically within a family, it is the father. But if the father's not around, or the father is not a Muslim, then somebody is appointed as the Wali. Somebody who is there to ensure that the young lady is not taken advantage of. So he was the Wali and this was my first introduction to him. And essentially my first thought was, don't mess around with this guy. So he invited me in and we had a chat. And he told me the rules of engagement. He goes, the front room had been prepared, that you would both be able to sit in there and talk, but the door should be left open at all times. There won't be a chaperone with her in the room but there may be somebody standing outside. I mean, I had done this a few times before, so I kind of expected it. To be honest, it was still a bit strange. I just really wanted to have a chat. I mean, ultimately, I'm going to marry somebody, right? So at least we could talk. So I went into the room. And it's all quiet, except for a few giggles of kids somewhere around the house. And then five minutes later, in she walks. And she takes a seat as far away from me as possible on the other side of the room, on a single sofa. We give each other salam. We smile. Giggle a bit. And then we begin. And I ask her how she is. And she tells me, Alhamdulillah, all praise is due to God. And then I ask her about her family. And I ask her how she came to Islam. And what she looks for in a husband. And I tell her a little bit about my life. Nothing too deep, but just enough to get a feel for who I am and who she is. It seems like we haven't said anything, but we've been there an hour. And then out of nowhere, a voice comes through the door. It's the Wali. It's time to end the meeting. It's pretty abrupt, but we do get a chance to say our goodbyes. Not before one of the kids comes in with a mouthful of water and spits it all over her dress which we both found absolutely hilarious. I mean, it would be nice of that to have happened at the beginning of the meeting, it would have really have broken the ice. But to be fair, we did get on. We got on really well. And so after a few pleasantries, I, I leave the house and I make my way to my car. And I'm on cloud nine. I know that this woman will be my wife. I know that, I feel that, I want that. And so that evening, I prayed to Allah, I prayed to God. 
I prayed the prayer of making a decision, the istikhara prayer. O oh Allah, if marrying this woman is good for me, is good for my religion, is good for my life and my afterlife, then enable it for me, remove the obstacles between me and that. But if in your wisdom you know that marrying this woman is bad for me, is bad for my faith and is bad for my life and my afterlife, then keep it away from me and help me to be patient with that. A few days later, we spoke again but this time over the phone. And it was clear that we were into each other, but she was hesitant. I couldn't really put my finger on it, but there was something holding her back. So I asked her outright, what's wrong? Don't you like me? She goes, no, of course I do. It's just it's my family. I said, what's wrong? She says, well, I don't know what to do. I can't really marry without them having met you. I said, well, I'll meet them then. He goes, you arrange it and I'll be there. And so another date was set and another set of people had to be met. Of course, it's the right thing to do. You can't marry somebody who's come to a new religion and not meet their family. Even I knew that. This was slightly convoluted because her mother and father weren't together. So I had to meet her mother separately to her father. Two meetings as opposed to one. But I was determined. I needed to do whatever was required to convince her that we should marry. And so once again, I was on best behaviour. I bought a bunch of flowers and I drove to meet her mother. Little did I know that she had a large extended family. So when I turned up to the house, I was greeted by not only her mother, but also her aunt and her grandmother as well. And so I walked in and I handed over the flowers, which were gratefully received. And then I sat down. And there were the five of us just sat in silence with the TV providing a little background noise. I think Emmerdale might have been on. And then we just started talking. And they were a very pleasant family. But I quickly realized that this was outside of my context. I don't really know this world. I don't really know the world 
of the working class, white, non-Muslim. It was clear from our pleasantries, there was no depth to our conversation. We were simply there because it was the right thing to do. What I wasn't aware of then was that she had not told her mother or her family that I was there with a view to marrying her. Not that I guess it would have made much sense to them anyway, which is probably why she didn't tell them. She probably told them that there's a guy that I'm interested in and I want you to meet him. That would probably be quite normal. Anyway, there were no fireworks, no massive highs or lows in that meeting. It went just as well as it should. Meeting her father was different. You see, he... He's a Lancashireman, and he's a man of few words. Now, I normally don't have a problem speaking with people who don't like speaking. I can speak for most people. I can fill dead air. But this was particularly difficult because even when you're doing most of the speaking, you're looking for clues and cues from the other person that they're interested in what it is you're saying. But I wasn't getting any of that. And so I was sat in his house with his wife and with my wife-to-be, I hoped, again making pleasant conversation, talking about work, talking about future plans, without ever mentioning the word marriage. It was all a bit odd. And again, I felt out of my context. Now, I'm from West London. And people in West London speak like this. There isn't really a heavy accent. But even with this accent, you can ham it up a bit. You can start to speak a little bit differently. Just in order to show that you are a civilised person. Your back straightens, you roll your R's a little bit more. You don't quite have a plum in your mouth, but you get what I'm saying. And that's the voice that I revert to when I want to be taken seriously. It's the voice that I used to use in job interviews. It's the voice that I would use if I was in trouble with any authority. It's the voice that I would use when I was at immigration or customs. Yes, of course, somebody like me can't be trouble. Somebody like me can be trusted. I'm educated. So this is the voice that I adopted for the meeting with her father. I left not knowing what to make of it. I thought maybe I'd blown my chances. That if he didn't like me, then would she look beyond that and take a risk? I left slightly dejected. So I had done all that I could. I had met with the family. I had met with her on a few occasions. My family had met with her. So really, we needed to make a call. So I made a suggestion. 
I said, listen, why don't you pray to Allah? Pray istikhara. These are the words. Pray and ask for his guidance. And let's speak once you've done that. And she agreed. And we set a time and a date. So sitting in the car outside Hanwell Mosque in January 2000, it was time to make the phone call. It was time to find out what her answer was. So I made the call. Assalamu alaikum brother. Assalamu alaikum sister. We spoke about everything and nothing. And then I waited for the right moment. And I paused and I took a breath. And then I asked her, will you marry me? Yes. Yes, I'll marry you. You've been listening to Divorced Muslim Dad, a podcast series about my life as a married man of 10 years who had two kids, who subsequently divorced, and who is Muslim. If you like what you've heard, then I'd encourage you to subscribe and also, if possible, to leave a review. You'll find this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and many other players. If you would like to get in touch and comment on the show, you can email us at divorcedmuslimdad at gmail.com or you can use the hashtag DMDad on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.